do the work to detach and you will feel freer and actually your work will probably be more impactful and meaningful as a result. Welcome everyone to another edition of the Ally Networking Podcast. Today you are definitely in for a treat. We are going to talk to our mentor, Ida Norheim Hagton, who is the Senior Program Officer at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, working on global leadership engagements for the CEO Mark Sussman and the co-chairs Bill and Melinda Gates. Her role at the foundation is a mix between strategist, communicator, and tour manager, working to ensure that all global leadership engagements are as impactful as possible. Her background is in policy, advocacy, and strategic communications for social impact, having worked for organizations like the UN High Commissioner for Refugees in Iran, the UN Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees in Lebanon, the Oxfam in the UK, and much, much more. We talk about you know, heavy metal music and growing up in an island and how that shaped her desire to work in global issues. Um, she's also passionate about the unique role of the arts, creative campaigning and digital innovation in changing hearts and minds and advancing social causes. And she's been involved in a range of creative work, including an award-winning Norwegian digital campaign to change attitudes around overseas development aid film and theater production in the Middle East and the UK, and a lot more. This is a really, really great conversation. We talk a lot about boundaries, keeping your mental health in a good place when dealing with such heavy and difficult issues, what she expects to achieve, how does she plan for her life, and some really you know, interesting moments. And we do talk a lot about failure and experimentation, so... I think it's a great conversation for anyone starting their career at a crossroads or who's feeling a little bit disillusioned. So yeah, with that said, let's dive right in. Ida, welcome to the I Like Networking podcast. Thank you. Very, very excited to have you here with us, even though you were like across the world from us right now, I think. Are you in Seattle at the moment? That's right, yeah. I'm in Seattle. Are you in Brazil still or are you back in London? No, I'm back in London. Okay. Uh, I've been back for a while, yeah. So <laughs> we, like my whole family is spread out and so we have people all over. So yeah. I keep getting like, like the reports from which place is doing okay and like everyone who has kids is like competing to see who has more issues with their kids, who's going crazier, you know? Oh my God, it's such a patchwork of things. I'm, I'm like looking forward in some ways to the post-race analysis of all of this, of like just how different governments fared and how it landed and everyone, because I feel like all my friends in different cities are kind of dealing with slightly different restrictions and slightly different implications for their lives. Well, thank you for doing this on a Friday night. I thought you were doing it at like Brazil lunchtime. So that's that's fine, there's nothing it. to do in London. We are <laughs> recording this as of... It's right. 12 of March and there's literally not much to do right I now. I know, so London's some of the strictest. To to you. Good, I'm grateful. <laughs> yeah, no, it is strict, but you know, now at this point, I, I was like, I, I've had, I feel like, I feel like it's almost like going through the like 12 steps of like grief, you know, you're going through like rage, denial, then you like, I don't know what all the steps are to be honest. So <laughs> like... I know that there's there's like anger and denial, right? So maybe, maybe we're still there. We're not sure and, what the next step yeah. is. Yeah, and so now I'm like either totally conform, like, okay, this is the situation. Then some days, like, out of the blue, I'll have, like, this desire to yell. 
Like, it's just mm-hmm. like, ah, mm-hmm. you know? So I feel that, you <laughs> starting feel the podcast looking sounding <laughs> we can super start with a, stable. <laughs> we can start with a primal scream if that's what you'd like to do. You just tell me what's helpful. <laughs> oh my god. No, let's let's start uh focusing on you because that's what we're here to talk about. So Ida, do you want to tell us quickly what is it that you currently do? Mm-hmm. Where are you from? And we've established you're in Seattle right now. So tell us a little bit about your journey uh, in, in a bit. Yeah. So where did you start? Because I know you came from a small place in mm-hmm. Norway. Mm-hmm. That's and right. you've been to many, many places <laughs> since. So give us a bit of an overview. Yeah, yeah, happy to. Yeah, happy to. Yeah, no, I have to start on the island where I grew up because that's still very much my base camp in many ways and where I think a lot of my motivations for doing the work I now do started. So yeah, I grew up on a small Arctic island in Norway, 69 degrees north. Um, I joke that my village had a puffin to human ratio of like 200,000 puffins to a few hundred people, <laughs> which is a good ratio, I think. Um Yeah. And, you know, if you look at the map, that looks like a really remote place, but actually a lot of geopolitics and global issues lands on that place. I mean, we're we were a strategic point in the Cold War and still do a lot of reconnaissance of Russian activity in the Arctic and general just tracking of Arctic activity. When I grew up um, and still to this day, Norway has a very decentralized asylum policy, which means that asylum seekers and refugees are placed kind of throughout the country also in small island communities like mine. So growing up, I, you know, met Tamil refugees from Sri Lanka in my school or refugees from the former Yugoslav countries. And so, yeah, like big issues of conflict and peace and war and development kind of landed on that place. Um, And of course, climate issues land on that place as well, given we're in the Arctic, super reliant on the Gulf Stream for our temperature and climate. So Yeah, so I mean, it looks small, but it's a big global place in a sense. And I think that's where my motivation to work on kind of global issues started. That's crazy. I would never think about that when I think about (laughs) Norway. Right. No, no. I mean, if you look at the map, like I said, most people are like, oh my gosh, you grew up in such a rural place. I'm like, yeah, but you know, it's a microcosm and a metaphor for a lot of really big issues and climate change, of course, being the most pressing now, but certainly also geopolitics, like I say, and, and kind of global development issues. So, yeah, so I grew up very much sort of thinking I want to do something that's global, but how do you draw the line from this, you know, tiny 450 person village I'm in to doing something in that heady world of global affairs? Like, I don't know. <laughs> so that's a very nonlinear story. Um, I joke that my mom... And my parents actually were very globally focused as well. And so um, just a quick story on that. My Norwegians love to decorate their Christmas trees with Norwegian flags. Okay. My, my mom thought that was so nationalistic. So she made us as kids draw all the world's flags and including the United Nations flag to decorate our Christmas tree with, with that. Because she was like, we're not nationalists, we're globalists. <laughs> So our Christmas tree had all of the world's flags, although I have to say we actually ended up giving up around Trinidad and Tobago because it was so labor intensive. (laughs) Um, So I I think we kind of were like, okay, we're done. Um, But all that to say, you know, super globally oriented parents as well, even if we were again, you know, in this Arctic tiny island where I'm still, my my family still trace back to like Viking times there and and we're still there. Um, But yeah, so 
globally oriented and then it was about finding okay what are the steps to get to something that's a global organization and that was as I say very non-linear but I went ended up in an international boarding school called the United World College in New Mexico which is all about global citizenship so taking high school students from all over the world and trying to get them engaged on global issues. Um, I went to uh, the London School of Economics in London and the grad school in the US on to study international relations and then it was a lot of saying yes to jobs within the UN system so I was in Iran and Lebanon with the UN and Oxfam nonprofit world creative consulting campaigns yeah quite non-linear um, until I ended up where I am now which is at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation um, where I sort of say my, my job's kind of a combination of strategist communicator and tour manager <laughs> Um, we can probably get into that more, but but yeah, we're a big global health and global development um, organization that works. I mean, the, the summary of what we do, we say we're, we're impatient optimists um, tackling inequity, global inequity. And I've always loved the impatient optimist part of that because I've always been an optimist. I think you need to be that to a certain extent to, to be in this, you know, work of trying to, you know, reduce poverty and fight inequities in all its forms. Um, but I like the impatience part of it as well. <laughs> Because yeah. the work is really urgent, and so you need that kind of, yeah, momentum and impatience to to move it forward. So this is really interesting. Did you kind of, when you were growing up, did you always kind of want to do something about like these issues in the world? Because you you were like in contact, I guess, with different cultures, but you were still quite, I'd say, like protected potentially in this microcosm. So. How did it come, like, when did you decide, okay, I really want to go after those opportunities? And then, like, you ended up in New Mexico. Was this, did your parents support you? Did you have to find it out all on your own? Mm. Yeah, no, I think, honestly, the the interactions, it started with refugee and asylum and migration issues because, again, it landed very much on the island where I was actually meeting kids my age who came from conflict at the time. Uh, which again is just sort of a product of how asylum policies in Norway work, where they really try to not centralize so much in the urban areas, but kind of decentralize and make sure that anyone coming into Norway from a conflict or other former refugee um, status kind of have that interaction with the local community. So yeah, as a kid, it was just a lot of interactions with people who came to the island from, you know, these fascinating places. I mean, as a kid, you're like, oh, wow, I'm living in this super blonde, blue-eyed, non-diverse <laughs> community. And now we're, you know, meeting people from all over. Um, so that was definitely the first trigger, like, oh, wow, there's like some real injustice and, and kind of a growing realization that a Norwegian passport carries a lot of privilege with it. Um, so, yeah, it was definitely kind of started there and with parents that were super supportive of, hey, like, yes, absolutely, go and do something that's globally oriented and, and big and political, whatever it might be. Um, so, yeah, lots of support. And, of course, in Norwegian, I mean, Norway... Obviously, it's a very privileged society in a, a well-off country. So lots of, you know, I, I was definitely a beneficiary of smart education policies. They, they're really good at sponsoring your education. So, I mean, I went through, you know, education abroad, pretty much financed by the Norwegian government and so on. So certainly helped by, by the social democracy that I grew up in. That's amazing. No, but this is so interesting to me. Like, I don't know if I told you this when we first spoke about you coming on board as a mentor, but I graduated international relations. That's right. And you did mention that. Yeah. 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 And I didn't want to be the president for a very short-lived moment of my life. <laughs> didn't we all? <laughs> and then I got 
very frustrated but i guess my first experience with politics was in brazil which as we know doesn't have the best track record when it comes to politics mm-hmm. i'll leave it at that because this is 2021 <laughs> i think yeah i'll, heard I'll be diplomatic as well yeah <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it was hard but i was like so idealistic you know and then like it came crashing down yeah. really fast so i really always admire people who continue you know to go fight for it uh in that in that level you know in the policy level i guess i think a lot of people go into international relations really excited about the un system about multilateralism or about going into politics in their domestic space and a lot of people end up pretty disillusioned at the beginning and then it takes a while i think to find your path, it's certainly not a linear one in that world. So yeah, it took me definitely, I feel like my 20s were a lot of experimentation and saying yes to things, maybe if they, were, they weren't necessarily like an obvious fit, but just trying to test out different sectors, different, different ways to have an impact um, and kind of trying to build experience sort of through projects, consultancies, and yeah, just as I say, saying yes to things, um, experimenting with different, countries to live in and different ways to get at these seemingly, I mean, extremely complex problems, which means that the world, like the organizations to set up, the organizations set up to fix these problems are also quite complex. So yeah, finding your space within that is not straightforward. And I certainly have a lot of, yeah, disillusioned IR grads around me who are like, it's hard, it's hard to find your place in that. Yeah, and I feel like a lot of the spaces as well where you operate, like some foundations or even, you know, big institutions like the UN, they're not as clear, like you go in and you're not exactly sure what you're going to be doing there, uh, oh, which is yeah part of the problem. Um, I guess in all of the, all industries, it's probably an issue, but I think in the creative industries, that as well tends to happen a lot where there's like this big title and you're like, Wait, but what exactly is that this like entails on a day-to-day basis? But mm-hmm. uh, we are going to untangle all of that here. So yes. you mentioned you studied at the London School of Economics. What did you study there? And I guess you moved to London. I'm going to assume that you knew some people here. Maybe you didn't. How was your adaptation into the city? And then where your first sort of work experiences here? Yeah. God, I love London and it was a huge, I mean, it was an amazing experience. It definitely took me a while because I basically like grew up on the island and then went to this boarding school in New Mexico, like 200 people in the middle of nowhere. Our only neighbor was Patrick Swayze, if anyone remembers him from Dirty Dancing. And that's like the only neighbor in miles. Um, So like rural New Mexico and then London was definitely a shock to the system. But, you know, I mean, it's, I consider it home in many, many ways. Um. LSE was, yeah, it was an international relations degree, which I I remember thinking you might have felt the same. Like you kind of think maybe it'll be a little bit more practical or, uh, you know, action oriented. So I remember thinking, oh, wow, this is really, it's really theoretical. And I'm not sure that I, I thought maybe I'd have more solutions when I left it, you know, like how do we fix this problem? (laughs) Um, (laughs) As opposed to this is really complex and the system is complex. So yeah, it felt quite dry and theoretical, but I mean, I had a great time at LSE. A lot of my really close friends are still um, London-based. And of course, you know, I mean, it's just such a hub of all of the things that you have to 
yeah, you have to work pretty hard to make that city work for you. And certainly it can be a humbling place as a student with, you know, limited resources. So I certainly had like a dream of London that was a lot more like access to things than what it actually ends up feeling when you're a student, like trying to budget for things and just keeping it together. So I, I definitely remember the first few years being really challenging. And I think many of my friends have just come out now, you know, gosh, a lot of years after kind of admitting to ourselves that it was actually harder than we wanted to say at the time of just like, gosh, like financially challenging, just the logistics of the city. Like it's just all, it's, it can kind of chew you up and spit you out, you know? Um, so yeah. 100%. <laughs> so I have a love hate relationship with London, but, but you know, it's still also my favorite place in the world just because of the energy and diversity of the place. So yeah. So, I mean, one of the kind of career lessons for me actually was that LSE, of course, is kind of a place that also fast tracks people into big institutions. And so as I was thinking about our conversation today, I was thinking, you know, I think one of my key lessons was to look, look for the potentially big impact in the smaller places. Cause I think there's a tendency, and I think that's true of the art world as well, the creative sector, to kind of be really focused on the big brands and big names, big institutions. You know, if you work in dance, you want to be at Sadler's Wells or, you know, um, and actually you can flex a lot more muscle potentially, at least if you go for something a little bit less um, known. So my first job actually ended up being with a small production company called Germination. I was the first employee. I'm still to this day, super good friends with the founder um, and we did all kinds of creative campaigning um, for kind of the social impact world. This feels like the heady early days of social enterprise in London. Um, mm -hmm. And so we'd work on kind of creative. Actually, we did something at Sadler as well as actually on, um, you know, working with um, dancers, uh, teaching young people in prison dance, contemporary and ballet, um, and doing some performances around campaigning against the youth imprisonment rate in London or in the UK which I think might still be one of the highest, certainly in Western Europe. But anyway, so using kind of the, the, the vehicles of dance um, to kind of make a point to decision makers around these young people are more than what they're convicted for. Um, but that was a tiny product. I mean, we're literally, like I said, we're just two employees in Angel in London um, trying to do that, that type of campaigning work. And yeah, I mean, I flexed a lot more muscles than I would have in a huge institution. So I think there's something to be said there for, yeah, looking for the big and the smaller. Yeah, that's a very good point, I think, in terms of what you can learn on, on the go on a small institution. It's stressful because they are going to make you do things that you have no idea how to do. Yes, you have to but be an all-rounder for sure. Yeah, but it is a learning opportunity for sure. Yeah. So then how did that evolve? So you were in London, you that, had that opportunity. I think this is actually a good moment to ask you, like looking back so far, what's like one of the worst job experiences you've ever had or like a big like career fail moment if you ever had one? Absolutely, plenty to take <laughs> from. <laughs> uh, and actually it, it does relate to London as well, though this is a little bit later. So, you know, in that world, again, of international relations and global development, there's a real attachment to external validation and external institutions that can kind of tell you that you're smart. <laughs> um, so I think fundamentally my biggest failure, and I still have to work on it to this day, is overemphasizing external validation of my work and being over-reliant on that external validation. 
and I think the 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 situation that comes to mind I'm sure I can think of many more um is actually when uh, I was applying to grad school and so I think similarly again if you're trying to get something published or if you're trying to yeah, get into the school that you think you have to go to, or if you're trying to, you know, wh- whatever it might be, some somebody needs to say your work is good and belongs on this stage in, in this institution. I had this idea that I need to go to a certain um, set of schools in the US that's all like a really top range international relations schools. And I'd um, at this point, I'd had a few years in Iran as well. So I worked for the UN High Commissioner for Refugees straight after germination that I just mentioned. Um, and so I was sort of full of confidence and thinking, yeah, I'm just going to make this pitch and I'm going to go to I don't know, Harvard or Princeton or something and do international relations at a graduate degree. And I was living in um, uh, London at the time and I got rejected from all of the ones I applied to. And I remember no. the final letter came through and I remember just being in my like small London apartment, sobbing in my bathtub, like sob- just like, oh my gosh, I'm never going to find a path in like global issues like I'm just clearly not cut cut out for this work I have to rethink my entire plan like oh my gosh like and you know it's like your heart sinks so much when you get these like we regret to inform you that you know and I think it's so important for people to bear in mind maybe even more so in the creative space where I feel like you know if you were going to click through LinkedIn or just click through what people have published done performed of course all you're seeing is the successes you're not seeing the amount of rejection letters and and tricky conversations or meetings that went the wrong way um so I'm just glad you're asking the question because I think it's so important and actually funnily enough what what ends up what that story ends up being actually is that I applied again the next year and just got accepted to basically all of them a year later which makes you know so which makes no sense if somebody, you're like I'm this I'm the same person applying but you know basically a year of reflection a year of patience a year of maybe slightly more humility had reframed my application completely to the point where all of a sudden it was relevant and all of a sudden it worked um and I actually ended up going to another school that's actually kind of an underdog and much less known but because because at that point I wasn't so attached to oh it has to be this big name I was actually much more focused on what's the content who am I going to meet there who are the professors actually um, so I actually said no to some of these bigger names for, for, for a smaller school. Um, so that was good learning for me also, like, don't be so attached to these big brands. Um, yeah. But also, yeah, I guess you just, you know, you wrote it differently a year later and you're, you've, you've evolved and now it's working. So patience is I a virtue. There is like, I heard this the other day and it's super like, uh, like hippie, not hippie, but it's very much like self-help sounding, but it's like, Things happen for you, not to you. And I feel like when it comes to those things, that applies a lot. Like, I remember when I first applied to do, like, film school, grad grad school, like, in film business in the U.S. I was super young, and I applied, and I just wanted NYU. And they were the only first ones to reject me, sure. me and my friend. <laughs> and we were, like, so mad. Like, we got an interview, and we were both rejected. And then I received a scholarship from another school and it ended up not going to anything and opening a, an agency in Brazil. So like uh, then years later, when I was applying for my master's and why well, you did accept me and I was like, yes. <laughs> and now I look back at the application and I'm like, God, that was so bad. Like I was so green. I had no idea, you know, like I, I, I was not grad school material at that time, you know, mm-hmm. like yeah. not for that. So I think 
there's something to be said about that. Like it, you can big, like one year can make a big difference, especially if you're like in your twenties, right? Because so much is happening to you. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I would dread to reread the application I sent. <laughs> you know, I'm sure it was grandiose and misguided. Um, so I just, I just remember that it's just something about seeing that kind of stark, harsh yeah, this isn't going to work for us kind of letter where you feel like that your entire world is crashing. And then, of course, in retrospect now, it's just sort of a funny story and it's a blip in the grand scheme of things. But yeah. but, but doing the work to kind of, as you said, I, I totally agree. It's like, it's about how you interpret external events. Like you can't be so attached to them that you, um, yeah, just over emphasize their like you, you can you can control how that affects you and um, it's harder to do earlier on in your career but as you get more experience and just more interaction you can also yeah limit <laughs> limit the impact it has on you I think that's a good moment to actually insert a question that one of our uh, members uh, from our community asked which was about if how much of well in your opinion obviously how much of where you are right now was a work like of strategy like did you kind of have a clear-cut vision of like this is where I want to go or like when you were choosing where to go and study like how much did you strategize about the years ahead if you did yeah (laughs) yeah no I, I um I do think people tend to over emphasize really long game strategy because I just I mean just to the conversation we're just having about how, how much difference a year can make I think the notion that you can plan for 5 10 15 20 years is sort of I mean I think your, your ability to do that is limited and you're constantly evolving so I think I think people can sometimes get too fixated on the on the really long game strategy rather than sort of the midterm stuff so for me I think I had a north star which started in childhood like I said and and was sort of motivated you know really big picture of like I want to do something around global inequities in whatever way big or small so that was kind of a north star but in terms of strategizing I think my approach was a little bit more experimental so and that is actually, I think, another key lesson that it's okay to experiment. And oftentimes you just don't know what an opportunity will be until you've actually tried it. And so rather than kind of drawing out, you know, these three, five, ten year plans, maybe allowing yourself to experiment for a shorter time frame is okay. Like being open to those opportunities, I think, especially early on in your career, I think is super helpful. So I did a lot of one to two year stints in places. And you know, some people might look at that and say, oh, wow, there's like so your resume is like all over the shop. Um, but to me, that's there were very, very clear steps that built on each other and built, um, you know, in addition to the skills that also built a lot of adaptability to different contexts, sectors, people, etc. So I see a lot of merit in that. So, yeah, North Star, like some internal work around like what ultimately motivates you and energizes you at a really high level, I think is super important. But in terms of like the steps that will take you there and the companies or organizations or people that will get you there, I think that can be more experimented with. You can have a more playful approach to that. Having said that, though, yeah. it's funny because when I was packing up my apartment at that point in Oslo to move to Seattle for my current job, I found this 10 year plan I had done while in Iran at 24 in my first UN job where I clearly thought I could write 10 year plans for things. And weirdly enough, I had actually written 
in 10 years, get a job at the Gates Foundation. And I had never looked at this 10 year plan again. You know, I literally no. had put it in a notebook and like packed it away and, you know, clearly had not <laughs> paid much attention. So I was kind of taken aback when I opened this book, you know, 10 years later, I was like, oh, this is super weird. I am actually going there. So not to make it sound like some crazy manifestation, but, um, but <laughs> sometimes it I think. It could be, it could be, who knows, you know? <laughs> You know, the moral of the story is, yeah, put in a notebook and never look at it again. That's my, uh, that's my <laughs> approach to 10-year planning. <laughs> oh, God, yeah, but, I love that. <laughs> but so I think, like, I think sketching, but I, I think, you know, planning and strategizing, unless you really love doing that work, I think can sometimes feel a little bit daunting. So I think, yeah, sure, North Star and, like, maybe sketching out ideas and, yes, maybe putting them on paper and writing them out, like, that's great. Um, but I'm all for, um, yeah, being a yes person and, and trying things out. I love that. I think that is actually a really good moment for us to ask a little bit more about what you do. How did you, did you just apply for a job at the Gates Foundation and you got it? Did you know someone? And then what is, I think before the pandemic, what you, obviously you traveled a lot for the, for your work. And I, I, I'm assuming that that's changed, obviously. <laughs> Certainly has. So can you just give us a bit of an overview of what your role usually entails? And mm-hmm. can, if there, is there something that you actually spend a lot of time doing that you didn't really anticipate that you would? Um, so yeah, go, go with the flow. You can take some time. No, it's a big question. Yeah, I might have to start a little bit with what the foundation does because I don't know that it will be super familiar to everyone. So, That's so the Gates, yep. yeah. So the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, as I said, we're, you know, we call ourselves impatient optimists working to reduce inequity. And that's always resonated deeply with me for the reasons we're talking about. But there's like four pillars of our work that might be helpful for people to understand. So the first one is we work to ensure that more children and young people survive and thrive. And that can be through kind of education, maternal and child health, nutrition work, and so on. The second one is about empowering the poorest and especially women and girls to transform their lives. Um, and that can be, you know, things like access to contraceptives and family planning. It could be working with female smallholder farmers. It can be um, digital financial services for women. So kind of, yeah, the lens of women and girls is just super critical because it's at the core of so much of what we do and, and getting that right has just huge implications for all of our work across every theme. And then another big pillar is that we work on infectious diseases that disproportionately affect the poor. So that's stuff like pneumonia, polio, malaria, tropical diseases, that type of thing. You know, diseases that in high income countries, just they're not an issue anymore, basically. um, But still a major killer of people in middle and low income countries. Um, And then the fourth one is inspiring people to take action to change the world. And that's, again, kind of a cross cutting, you know, that's anything from, you know, working with governments because they're extremely critical in all of this work um, to working with, you know, media, influencers, communities, um, champions for change in every single country that we work in, um, just thinking about who the change makers are. Um, so that's just kind of the backdrop of what we do, which is really, I mean, it's a lot of different topics, but under this umbrella of global health, global development, um, combating kind of poverty and, and, and hopefully making the world a better place. Um, so within that, my work sits within sort of policy advocacy relationships. And so, as I said, I'm kind of a tour manager slash communicator slash strategist on that. So we're really lucky to have 
Bill and Melinda at the helm of the organization, they're obviously well-known people with relationships and influence that we can um, work with to advance our priorities. And so my role kind of thinks about our top leadership and how we think about their time and voice on all these different priorities. And so in practical terms, it means that my team are involved in, you know, in any given month of the year, we would normally be, you know, in Ethiopia talking about, you know, food security or family planning um, or in China talking about vaccine development and scientific collaboration or, um, you know, in any of our donor countries in Europe, um, thinking about how to, you know, work with governments on um, development spending. So a whole range of things. So, yeah, as you say, my job used to be pretty much on the road permanently, um, trying to work with partners to get this work kind of on the road. Um, and yeah, that's changed. <laughs> so <laughs> my day to day now is very different, but in, in many ways, it's I mean, the content of the work is the same. It's just that we've all moved digital now. So instead of, um, you know, being in Ethiopia, we're doing the meetings virtually. But um, but the crux of it remains the same. How do you work with partners to push this work forward? Because we are all impatient to get it done. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. So I would say. I have a few questions about that. One of them is when you first started, did you feel like, oh my God, there's so much. How do I, how will I figure this out? Because it sounds like, like so big and there's a lot of thinking that goes into it. So that, how do you, I guess, break steps down? You know, in your, what's your system to yeah. solving your, your day-to-day? So I bet you have to like put off a lot of fires throughout your day. <laughs> in your role yeah no I mean it's it's a real bird's eye view role which means you kind of have to have a handle on I think we're investing in 39 different issues right now so that can be like I said our HIV strategy or our polio strategy or our agriculture strategy or the family planning one and so you kind of have to have a you know top line handle on what we're trying to do on all those fronts um and then yeah I mean try to kind of make rhyme and reason um Definitely it's complex and um, kind of that task of, I think there are a few steps. It's sort of the comfort level of like, yeah, you have to be conversant on a lot of different things, but you can also trust. You don't always need to be um, the deepest on all these topics either. We have, I mean, I work with incredible colleagues that are deep, deep experts on this stuff. I always joke, I mean, one of my friends on the malaria team has his the slogan for the malaria team tattooed on his own arm. And I always joke, like if I was going to tattoo my life's mission, I mean, it would take my entire body first of all, because I wouldn't be able to be so succinct. Um, but like, you know, I, I, my role is a lot more broad and much more generalist and has to have a bigger range in a sense. And so I'm trying to be a proud generalist in a world of specialists um, and kind of enjoying having that overview and thinking systemically, hopefully, and seeing some connections between different things from where we're sitting at kind of a unique vantage point. Um, but yeah, being comfortable that there are always going to be people who are much more deeply expert on the topics than you are. Um, and yeah, and then just trying to break it down to like what you, what you have control over and what you, what your specific contribution to the work is. I mean, to your point about what do you do that you didn't think you'd spend time on, I think, and I think this is true again of global organizations and the creative sector. I think many of us think if you're just dedicated to the topic, dedicated to the output, you know, whether it's like 
putting on a performance or producing something or like that's that's your goal and so you can kind of deal with working in any type of organization or with any kind of person or any type of culture like you're just motivated by the thing itself and I think what I've had to learn is that no of course that's not how it works like you have to (laughs) you have to spend so much time on internal stakeholders and the culture that you you operate within and navigating kind of the internal politics and so yeah if you ask me in my 20s you know what I thought I would be doing I'd I'd be assuming that it was all kind of externally oriented and focused on the big mission but actually of course to get there you have to do so much of the internal work of who you're working with and managing those relationships and and yeah navigating the internal environment um and and also that to thrive actually you also need to be around the right people that give you energy and motivate you and so actually the organization you're in and the leadership you have is a huge part of that. You can't just push through in any kind of setting just because you're so motivated to the final outcome. Yeah, that, I think that leads really well into another question that one of our members asked about how do you take care of your you know, well-being working in such, I'm going to use her words, big and deeply involved in issues. <laughs> Oh, that's a sweet question. Um, yeah, I, um, hmm, it's a good question. I'm, um, I'm pretty militant. My friends will say this, that I'm pretty militant about boundary setting and self-care. Um, and I'm constantly reminding people to do the same. (laughs) Um, I think there is some, there's a real risk of burnout in this world where you feel like, well, you know, I'm in a privileged position and I'm trying to make a dent on these you know, huge issues of people that are a lot less privileged than me. So it's even privileged to talk about your own well-being in that setting. And, you know, who am I to kind of put boundaries? Like it's, yeah, it's again, it's critical and patient work. So we should just be working nonstop to get it done. And of course, I mean, I feel like, I mean, this conversation, I feel like has evolved so much in the workplace recently and also as a result of COVID. So I think everyone, I mean, hopefully has internalized it yeah, you need a happy workforce in order to actually be able to make a dent on those issues. So I think the the space for self-care and some boundary setting is growing. So yeah, I'm pretty um, focused on just doing what kind of energizes me also outside of work and being sure that there's some balance to that. Um, because otherwise you could end up really overwhelmed um, also by some of the heartbreak of the work um, because it can be pretty harrowing. Um, so you have to have a little bit of separation and yeah, take care of your own mental health and all of that. Yeah, I I feel you on that. Like it, it can't be. It, it's 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 difficult because you really want to, you're deeply engaged and you work for this like mission, right? Like you believe in something, it's aligned to your values, and then it's it's hard to like keep going, keep going. Then you just have to stop like your body literally makes you stop mm-hmm. at some point so this is a good good tip i guess um i have another question from you from some of our community which was what's the best business lesson or advice you've received mm. oh wow um Oh, that's so much good advice. I'm trying to like summarize it. Um, <laughs> you can give more than one. We can give more than one. Um, honestly, I think 
this um, love of experimentation comes back to me because like I said, it be perfect can really be the enemy of good and done is better than perfect. And I'm definitely, like I said, a, you know, notoriously focused on external validation, even up until this point in my career. Um, so I think advice around just doing the internal work necessary to consider that uh, perfectionism or attachment to external validation, that that stuff is really deep rooted. I think sometimes I think more in women in some ways, because we've been socialized to really deliver perfectly on many fronts. Um, so I think doing the deep work to acknowledge that that's actually like, there's a lot of shame attached to it. There's a lot of, um, insecurity attached to it and, and, taking the time if you want to be really impactful to do that challenging internal work is probably the best advice I've received. So I've done a lot of, I mean, you're actually answering some of that, right? With your mentoring program, like seek out mentors, seek out coaches, seek out therapists, like do the patient, sometimes nonverbal embodied work of leadership of just recognizing triggers and kind of how your body moves in the space and, and where, yeah, you're still attached to maybe some some behaviors and patterns that don't serve you. They might they might have served you in like elementary school when it was important or it felt important to get a certain grade or to do a certain drawing or you know, like but maybe in your twenties, thirties, forties you have to detach from that output oriented external thing. And I'm say honestly, I'm giving myself this advice because I, I I think it's ongoing work for me too. Um <laughs> Yeah. But but I think that that's actually um yeah, and as I, as I said, it's just it's deep nonverbal work. The best leadership stuff or or professional development work I've done has actually been pretty personal and kind of almost therapeutically oriented. Um, so it's not kind of the strategizing and the three to five year planning frameworks. It's actually, you know, why do you want to lead or why do you want to do this work? Um, at a really like much more fundamental level of who you are, uh, who you want to be in this world and taking the time to reflect on that i love that i think that's so important especially for people who are now in the process of applying for jobs or trying to get started it can be overwhelming and you can fall into that like apply for twelve thousand things and then you get an interview and you're like wow i don't even want to do this mm-hmm. <laughs> like what you know so which is it's just a complicated balance between being open to things and then putting yourself in situations that are not true to yourself but Mm -hmm. yeah yeah yeah. and I think especially I mean you know your community we've spoken about a little bit right like this has just been a really rough year um it's been a really really rough year and I think the kind of the gap between you know what people might feel their north star is and what they truly want to do or what they think they want to do versus what's available to them right now in a world that's regressed and is in you know it's been in a recession for a long time now like it's okay to be pragmatic and practical for a little bit it's okay to say yes to something that you're not totally sure of an experiment yeah. and give yourself just a slightly shorter timeline so not think that oh if i'm if i'm saying yes to this thing then that's my the direction I'm taking maybe it's the direction you're taking for the next six to 12 months to just keep yourself afloat and happy and mentally well and maybe there will be serendipity I mean every time I've said yes to something that didn't necessarily feel like the perfect thing I've always met amazing people there's always been serendipity of oh wow you got introduced to somebody and the snowball started rolling in another direction and something materialized that you could never have foreseen 
Um, so yeah. I think kind of, yeah, believing a little bit in, in the playfulness of saying yes and seeing what evolves, even if you're not sure that it's the right step, I think is important. And I think it's especially important now, just given the times we're in. Yeah, I, I 100% agree. And also like when you don't exactly know where to go and you're experimenting, it actually makes it a lot easier if you face something and you're like, okay, 100% that's not where I want to be, you know? And then you have a firm like line, like a firm no. Because mm-hmm. um, when you're starting out, it all seems kind of possible and then at the same time not possible because you don't really know how anything works. But I think that's really great advice and I appreciate you sharing all of that with us. Um, I think it, I wanted to ask you something else as well around sort of more how you adapt to new places because you moved from this tiny island to, you know, London, to New Mexico, now to Seattle. Like, how is this process to you? Like, do you find it easy to just pack up and change completely because those are all different cultures and diff- different places? How do you find your sense of, like, community wherever you go? Like, hmm. if yeah. you do, or you're just, like, really good at just, like, being, like, on your own, like, I can do this and I'll tackle another city on my own. Maybe that's you as well. I don't know. Yeah, no, I, sometimes I thought it might be too easy for me to uproot actually. And so the bigger work for me was to stay committed to one place, which is actually what Seattle has become for me now because I've been there for five years, which is probably the longest relationship to a place (laughs) apart from my island. Um, So I think, I mean, I, in this kind of, you know, approach of experimentation and playfulness I actually also I'm a huge believer in in moving and context shifting um I've always really enjoyed it because I think like on a fundamental level like when you move and you have to adapt to a new place I think you really realize what's core to you and you realize that that core might actually be smaller than you think it is so like in you know Isabel in London might be characterized by certain characteristics and you might feel that those are really true of your core identity, but maybe that's just who you are in relation to the environment you're in. And so when you change your environment, you realize, oh, wow, I have to actually accentuate other parts of my personality or I have to, you know, find common ground with people that it's a little bit harder with. It's not so natural. And so I've always kind of liked that dance of seeing that, oh, wow, like there's a lot of levels of my personality that I think are context specific and I can kind of play with and accentuate a little bit differently depending on where I am. And then as I do that, there's a process that also confirms there are some really core values that, of course, are core and true wherever you are. So I've always enjoyed that process of sort of self-reflection and seeing how you adapt to different environments and contexts. Um, But I think... I've always been pretty proactive when I get to a place of trying to cast in that really wide and just, again, be a yes person, seek out new um, communities, interests. I mean, wherever your interests are, just kind of try to find people um, that sort of, yeah, overlap in some way with those and just be super, um, yeah, super proactive. Um, so that's been kind of my my way of arriving, whether it's Beirut or Tehran or London or Seattle or wherever, it's always kind of been you know, I I guess I'm a pretty extroverted social person. So that's sort of been the approach. Um, It's probably changed a little bit as I've gotten older, but, but yeah, but kind of seeing again, having just facing that with some curiosity about who you show up as in different places, I think can be really helpful. Um, So that there's some sort of self-exploration 
with it as well. Um, and then, yeah, um, trying to find your people through just being yes person. And again, experimenting, getting out there, uh, being open, um, saying yes to things maybe you wouldn't say yes to at home. You know, like sometimes it's like, oh, wow, I wouldn't necessarily, you know, go to this concert or see this thing if I was like with my closest friends it wouldn't be on our radar it wouldn't be something we'd be interested in but yeah and I mean through being a yes person I found myself in anything from like the heavy metal environment of Iran which is surprisingly like really big they also love really? Norwe- they love Norwegian black metal so it's actually a good entrance <laughs> not that I have a very tenuous grasp of the metal scene in Norway at this point but but yeah, Iranians are just like very well, well versed in Scandinavian metal. So, so that's like, I mean, I spent so much time with, with musicians, like metal musicians in Iran, which is not something I would have imagined when I moved there. But yeah, so it's like that type of thing. I'm like, okay, it's just a little bit serendipitous and yeah, uh, let's just say yes and see where this lands. And, and you might be surprised both at who you meet, but also like how you end up feeling, um, and new interactions like that. Oh my god, that is so fun. I have to ask you a question that's completely outside of the remit of this uh, podcast. But yeah. since we're talking about metal music, basically I once had to produce a concert as well. And it was like a heavy metal concert. And I was like, oh my god, this is going to be a nightmare. I was expecting like absolutely the worst crowd. And then I was talking to this guy who's like a big uh, heavy metal like promoter in Brazil. And he's like, you are going to be surprised. It's the best audience of mm-hmm. all times. They are super respectful. Everything is super organized. Like the music is chaos, but the audience is amazing. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then I was like, okay. And then it was exactly, I was like, okay, this is the best audience I've ever had to deal with. And I don't know if that was the same experience you had, but totally. I felt like, all the, all the chaos is reserved to the music and that the audience is like super like mellow like this is where you go okay like no one like i don't know there was no problem mm-hmm. like at all mm-hmm. no 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 <laughs> totally it's a really misunderstood scene i think there's a lot of intellectualism there's a lot of uh, i mean it's actually really sophisticated and complicated music right extremely technical as well so um yeah no i mean i um like have good friends in that world a little bit and and yeah they're just all very well spoken articulated like eloquent and there's an amazing um I mean it's old now it's probably like 20 years old but it's a documentary called the headbangers journey that tracks kind of how metal evolved from the early days of kind of I think it was Brahms who had this um or actually no it's way before but it's like yeah no it's way before it's like Gregorian chants and early early religious music where there was one chord that was illegal because it sounded so dark and satanic basically so no religious music was allowed to use this particular chord and that's actually when you know like that's the chord that a lot of metal actually builds on it's a lot it's very dissonant and dark and yeah it sounds unsettling (laughs) um but anyway so he traces kind of from the early early uh, Gregorian chants up to this day kind of the the sort of family tree in a way of of hard rock and metal and every person interviewed is so like, you know, Alice Cooper is there talking about the gender dynamics of lyrics in heavy metal. <laughs> They're all just like very well spoken. And yes, yeah, so I think it's a, it's a misunderstood genre. And that's also true of Iranian metal. They're all like the nicest, sweetest people. <laughs> so I hung out with them a lot and miss them greatly. That's amazing. I love this detour. Okay, we're going to start wrapping up, promise. Uh, Ida, what is something or 
the thing that you love the most about what you do right now? Yeah, so what I find most motivating, I think, is when the work is connected to the ultimate goals we're, we're working on, you know, that North Star that I talked about. And even if it's like, I think wherever you are, however glamorous your job sounds, how strategic and senior it sounds, like there's always going to be internal politics to deal with and thankless tasks to deal with and, you know, stuff that's not that motivating in your day to day. Um, and so keeping your eyes on the ball and keeping your eyes on, okay, like this is how the work lines up is super important. And so when I feel like we're connected to the things that we're actually achieving, that's super meaningful to me. So one of the examples I always say, and the foundation talks about a lot is, is that this amazing, amazing gain we've had in childhood mortality and that so many fewer children now die before their fifth birthday. Um, so that rate basically since 1990, that's been halved. Childhood mortality is halved. Um, and that means that, you know, 122 plus million kids' lives have been saved. And that's just an indicator we care a lot about because that means education systems are improving, health systems are improving, nutrition is improving, maternal and child health is improving. So that's just, it's really great, great news. And it's a product of the world actually really tackling these things in collaboration and in a coordinated fashion. So... If I can kind of keep my eyes on that, even as we are in like, I don't know, working in some airport at 4 a.m. trying to put a schedule together or like writing briefing notes or running around a green room trying to like get something together, whatever it might be that feels kind of like, oh. <laughs> um, thinking about how that work in a small way lines up to the ultimate aims and the ultimate wins we're, we're achieving, like, that's when I'm the most motivated. And I think if we're all able to zoom out a little bit and see how it all connects, then, then yeah, that can be, that can be really energizing. So it's like good to, good to remind ourselves also of the good news, even in a year that's been so tough with bad news on so many fronts. Yeah, no, it's so important. And with that said, that what would you say to your younger self? Maybe think about the younger self crying in the bathtub about getting rejected. What would you say to her? <laughs> Be kind to yourself. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't want to, I feel like I'm repeating myself a little bit, but it is to do with this external validation thing. It's like you have to find it, you have to find that core of your own work that, and your own identity that exists separate to whatever the external world is telling you about its value. And that's patient work, it's internal, it takes maybe a lifetime, but, but finding kind of the freedom, you, like, and I will tell her, like, you will be able to find a freedom where you won't be so attached to grades, to rejection or invitation letters through, you know, institutions telling you that you're worthy, that you're valuable, that your work matters, that you can contribute something, like, you will be able to get some freedom from that. But I think in my early 20s, I was so, there was just an inextricable link between <laughs> those rejection letters in this example and my worth, my self-worth. And so I would tell her like, try to detach, do the work to detach and you will feel freer. And actually your work will probably be more impactful and meaningful as a result. That's amazing. Thank you so much. And I'm so excited to have you all the ally network program i bet you're gonna be an amazing mentor and uh, I hope we, so. i'm excited I, to take part <laughs> yeah we're gonna continue to make some dance in those stats that's literally the way i describe it when people ask i'm like 
well, I'm not sure I can solve the whole systemic issue of gender inequality in the creative <laughs> industries, but I'll at least make a little dent, you know? Yeah, no, you're doing hugely important work. And the thing is, it'll spring from there, right? Like you have your amazing cohort of mentors and mentees, but then the ripple effects from that, I think you, you don't even know what that will look like. The serendipitous effects will be huge as well. Yes, 100%. Ida, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us today. Thank you. And i sure I'm going to talk to you a bit more and I hope you go and enjoy your weekend as much as possible. Yes, we will do. Same to you. Enjoy London on a quiet um, Friday evening. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Eyeline Networking Podcast. For more information on everything that we do, just head over to our website, eyelinenetworking.uk or find us on social media now. If you're looking for more stories from inspiring entrepreneurs, check out the Serial Entrepreneurs from Startups Magazine, a print and digital publication that champions tech startups. Here, their editor, Anna Flockett, interviews the most innovative startups of the moment with some startup lessons and failure fables, as well as a sprinkling of inspirational advice. You can find them by searching the Serial entrepreneur, as in your breakfast, into any streaming service or by going to startupsmagazine.co.uk. See you next week.